What is going on, movie lovers? Welcome back to another edition of No Content for Old Men. This is the podcast where every week I give you reviews of the latest movies and some streaming suggestions for your weekend. As always, I'm your host, Matt Craig. Thank you so much for listening. And this week, I guess we're talking about literary adaptations because the two biggest movies of the week were Where the Crawdads Sing out in theaters and Persuasion, the Jane Austen adaptation on Netflix. Um, So we'll be talking about both of those, plus a fun little uh, documentary series and a a little Netflix 90-minute movie that you can catch this weekend. I want to mention right off the top um, that you can get in touch with me on Twitter at Mr. Matt Craig or through my newsletter at mattcraig.substack.com. Let me know what you think of these movies, if you've seen them, uh, what you think of uh, any other movies out there that I should be watching and maybe can review next week. All right, let's do it. Let's dive into Where the Crawdads Sing. Movie adaptations of popular books, video games, or even stage shows, as Dear Evan Hansen learned, are almost always doomed to failure. The best you can hope for is, "Eh, it's okay, but the book was better. And at worst, you've put an irremovable black mark on the original property. Simply put, you cannot compete with pre-existing expectations. Luckily, I had never read the 2018 mega-bestseller Where the Crawdads Sing by Delia Owens, and in fact, I had never heard of it until news stories started popping up about the book's author being questioned in real life in a real-life murder trial, which itself is pretty insane. Going in with a fresh slate, the movie, to me, was simply a part rom-com part courtroom drama set in the outer banks of North Carolina, sort of a The Notebook meets Peanut Butter Falcon. By now, you all know the rubric for such things. On a base level, rom-coms depend on the chemistry of the romantic leads and courtroom dramas on the strength of the lawyers to deliver a strong monologue. Check and check. Daisy Edgar Jones dominates the movie with the kind of charismatic lead performance that 20 years ago might have sent her towards a Julia Roberts-like trajectory had the movie been a box office smash. She can seemingly click with anyone, even the dreamy but bland Taylor John Smith. In the courtroom, David Strathairn plays an attorney so well, I had to double-check his IMDb to make sure he hadn't played some iconic one in the past that I'd forgotten. With those boxes checked, the rest is gravy. Edgar Jones plays a girl abandoned by her family who lives alone in the marsh, only to be outcast as, quote, the marsh girl, making her an easy suspect when a local hero ends up dead near her home. Along one timeline, witnesses are questioned in court, lending itself to recreate a past timeline in which she comes of age and learns to make a good life for herself entirely on her own, into which comes a uh, messy love triangle. It's a story well told. The movie is strangely both propped up and anchored down by its source material. Nearly every non-Edgar Jones compliment I'd pay to the movie is a result of the original story, which created some indelible characters and carved out some effective, if a tad obvious, themes about belonging that bring the movie to its satisfying conclusion. And yet, one cannot watch this movie without seeing its seams. Intercutting different timelines and laying in reflective voiceover simply works better on the page. 
within the context of a movie, they make a viewer feel a half step removed from total immersion in the story. The most remarkable thing about this movie is just how out of place it feels. It has all the makings of a classic streaming movie that we've talked about in the past few weeks, and yet it looks and feels every bit like a big studio theater release. Considering the lack of established star power and the limited ambitions, both commercially and critically, with no less than backing by a major studio in Sony and a mid-sized production budget of like $24 million, I saw, this movie stands as a pretty incredible counterpoint to the movies they don't make anymore category. That's exactly why its success, $26 million and counting, might be an even greater sign of movies revival as a whole than any of the crazy blockbuster movie numbers of late. There have been way fewer nationwide box office releases this year, with the thought being that people will only come out for the giant blockbusters and spectacle movies. Yet in there, competing with Thor and the Minions and what's left of Top Gun is this little engine that could. My hope is that maybe smaller movies with modest ambitions can carve out a place as counter-programming for the tentpole movies that come out every couple of weeks, which increasingly have catered to younger and younger audiences. My thought is that while these movies won't impact the bottom line for the big corporations that run the studios, maybe they can operate in the black enough to be used to develop relationships with exciting young talent. Weirdly, the most hopeful sign we, and I'm speaking for all of us here, can see right now is a bunch of pretty good movies like this one returning to theaters. Nobody has cracked the code on the miraculous alchemy that produces great movies, and so with more chances taken like this, we're far more likely to get some every year. And that is a future I can get behind. Every week, I give you something new, something old, and something to stream. This week's something new is on Netflix. It was the number one movie on the uh, Netflix scroll for most of this week. It's Persuasion. Jane Austen is arguably more popular now than she has been in any time in the last 200 years. And there's been a concerted effort in recent years to modernize her stories. I'm thinking about like the modern dialogue in Greta Gerwig's awesome Little Women in 2019 or the Instagram aesthetic of Anya Taylor-Joy in 2020's Emma or the totally reimagined Fire Island from earlier this year. But also the movies and shows that are clearly heavily influenced by Austin tropes like Emily Mortimer's In Pursuit of Love on Amazon Prime and don't even get me started about Enola Holmes. But much like Theseus's ship, it's hard to know at what point you've substituted so many modern elements that you've lost what made the original text special. Case in point, Dakota Johnson's classic lovesick Austin heroine is played here as a fourth wall breaking, wisecracking girl boss, turning up her nose at the types of surrounding characters who populate all Austin tales like whiny sisters and charming suitors and oppressive parents. As I've said many times, it's almost impossible to maintain that ironic detachment and essentially make fun of your own premise while also asking audiences to buy into it in the third act. Johnson's charisma makes the movie watchable, but 
she doesn't have an ounce of chemistry with either end of her love triangle. I think by now we can say definitively that Henry Golding, while very attractive, (laughs) isn't a good actor, at least not a complex one. And Cosmo Jarvis presents such a British stiff upper lip that he's repressed his personality entirely, making his Wentworth character such an odd object of attraction. This movie scratches all the same itches that Austin fans will love, which I can roughly boil down to, I don't know, beautiful young women in frocks gossiping. (laughs) It's fun enough, but anyone who watches this over the 2019 Little Women, no matter how many times you've seen it, to be honest, needs to get checked out by a doctor. This week, Something Old came out in 2022. Actually, this past week. It's now streaming on HBO Max. It's called The Last Movie Stars. This documentary series was just released, so I know I'm cheating, but it's about the lives and marriage of Paul Newman and Joanne Woodward. And I promise it will make you want to go back and watch a ton of old Paul Newman movies. If you do, I recommend give the highest recommendation for The Sting, Butch Cassidy and the Sundance Kid, and Cool Hand Luke, among many others. This is such a cool premise for a documentary. Directed by Ethan Hawke, the the actor who I featured recently in The Black Phone, but might be best known for Training Day or the original Purge. Uh, The trailer explains it well, so you might want to look up the last movie star's trailer on YouTube. But basically, before he died, Paul Newman did over 100 interviews with his super famous friends to tell honest things about him for a memoir. Then he ended up burning the tapes, but the transcriptions of the interviews survived. So Hawk casted his super famous friends to stand in for the originals, like George Clooney as Newman and Laura Linney as uh, Woodward, with roles in there for Oscar Isaac, Mark Ruffalo, Sam Rockwell, Sally Field, Billy Crudup, and on and on and on. Watching the first episode this week uh, gave me goosebumps, and honestly, I can't wait to watch the rest in the coming days. Something to stream this week, also on Netflix, it's The Rental. One of the subcategories on my Netflix feed is 90-minute movies which is kind of a brutal reminder by the almighty algorithm that my viewing decisions are often driven less by the quality of a movie or a show than by how big the current void of time is that I'm trying to plug when I plop down at the end of a long day. This row is made up exclusively of genre fare, comedies, rom-coms, and horror mostly, but readers of this this newsletter and listeners of this podcast know that I have a sweet spot for elevated genre movies that are able to transcend the cookie cutter tropes. One such cinder is The Rental, the directorial debut of James Franco, starring his wife Alison Brie, and we can now add the name because he's become America's favorite burned out heartthrob on the bear, Jeremy Allen White. I think I was too harsh on the movie in my initial full review, which you can find at mattcraig.substack.com, because this movie is more interested in being an intersecting love triangles indie rather than a horror movie, and I now see that's not really a bad thing. 
even if I, you know, even if it doesn't, if the movie doesn't entirely pay off on its terrifying premise of what if your Airbnb host was spying on you and messing with you, it's still absolutely worth the watch for its stellar vibe. All right, guys, that's going to do it for this week's show. Again, thank you so much for listening. Thank you for spreading the word. I would love to get uh, this podcast specifically out to more people because a very, very, very small fraction of of the people who read my newsletter tune into the podcast, and I I doubt there's a whole lot of overlap there. So I would would love for more people who like listening, you know, to podcasts and maybe wouldn't read the whole newsletter to tune in. So if you have friends and you have people who you know would be interested – please uh, share the word on the podcast. As for next week's show, it's going to be a very exciting one. Uh, Nope. Jordan Peele's new movie is coming out. I'm seeing it this weekend. I could not be more excited for that. One of my most anticipated movies of the year, maybe number one on that list. So I absolutely cannot wait for that. Also, The Gray Man on Netflix, starring Ryan Gosling and Chris Evans. I mean, Netflix is... I mean, kind of blatant attempt to uh, make a James Bond-like franchise. So that's going to be a huge movie. I I really can't wait to see. I've heard it's a mess. Knowing other Netflix blockbusters, that doesn't surprise me. But uh, we're going to see for ourselves. So we have a huge week next Friday. You've got to come back and make sure you tune in. But until then, as I always say, I guess I'll see you at the movies.